Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for May 4th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. A quick piece of housekeeping before we get the show rolling. As of just a couple of weeks ago, you can now listen to our show in addition to its usual spot on the Daily Journal homepage at dailyjournal.com, as well on iTunes and also the podcast app on iOS devices. Without further ado then, last week the U.S. Supreme Court heard its last oral argument of October term 2017, the government's attempt to reverse the Ninth Circuit's injunction of the third iteration, President Trump's travel ban, a proclamation barring entry into the country for most nationals of eight countries, most, though not all, majority Muslim. Solicitor General Noel Francisco argued that the ban resulted from a diligent national security review of the included nation's vetting procedures and is a statutorily prescribed exercise of the president's authority to exclude classes of aliens if their entry would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. But in analyzing the case's religious discrimination claim, the court will need to decide whether and to what extent it should look past that proffered basis for the proclamation to consider Donald Trump's repeated promises, many delivered on the campaign trail, to affect a religiously-based anti-Muslim immigration system. Francisco and the government's supporters say the court need not look past that given reason for the proclamation, namely national security, especially here in the foreign policy context where the president is generally afforded deference. But others, including the Fourth Circuit, which enjoined the proclamation, say the government's proffered motive need not deter the court from looking more closely to attempt to glean a discriminatory intent, especially if the court thinks the given one seems pretextual, as the inclusion of presidential statements and tweets and judicial decision-making seems a recurring theme under President Trump. The high court's guidance on what such statements are worth relative to proffered policy actions will undoubtedly influence lower courts going forward in a whole host of different challenges like ongoing cases involving DACA and sanctuary cities and the like. Two guests today will provide their views. We'll be joined first by Professor Richard Primus of the University of Michigan Law School. He says the court should not shy away from assigning Trump's statements whatever probative value they genuinely have to show a constitutionally impermissible purpose. Then Rory Gray, an amicus and senior counsel from the Alliance Defending Freedom, will explain why standing constitutional doctrine recommends the court focus squarely on the expressly given reasons on the face of the government's action and less on the statements of one governmental actor, even the president, since interpreting the latter leaves room for subjective interpretations and likewise First Amendment concerns like the speech chilling that might impact public officials and those running for office, whose potentially overly enthusiastic campaign promises might preclude them from tailoring constitutional measures once in office. Before hearing from our guests, though, one quick reminder that listeners of this podcast can receive one credit of California CLE. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Our first guest is the Theodore J. St. Antoine Collegiate Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School, formerly clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and his writing appears in the pages of the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Politico, among other publications. He's Professor Richard Primus. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Last Wednesday, as, as many know, the U.S. Supreme Court heard Hawaii's challenge to President Trump's third version of the, the travel ban. It has a very lengthy title, one I won't uh, belabor here, but suffice it to call it a, the third version of the travel ban. It's a multi-part challenge. has a statutory piece, a constitutional piece. You wrote on the Take Care blog um, a bit about one piece of the constitutional challenge, and, and namely whether and, and to what extent 
the, the court should consider presidential statements and in, in making its constitutional calculations. So more specifically, whether the court should say, take into account candidate Trump's statement in 2015 that he would call for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the U.S. when it tries to weigh whether this order has some kind of improper religious animus at its bottom. Now, you say that at, before, at oral argument, the two advocates proposed a couple of ways the, ju- the justices could go after that question, work through it. Uh, you, you say those approaches that were proposed were sort of uh, stilted kind of legal fictions, a bit um, facile perhaps. Um, we'll get into that, but maybe just as a kind of general rule, what tends to be the approach when there is presidential statements that could bear on um, a court's outcome or a court's de- determination of what a challenged law or order means? There is some doctrinal direction, right? I mean, in constitutional claims, often the government's motive is what's really important, right? Yes. So in lots of areas of constitutional law, the question isn't just what the government did, but why the government did what it did. So for example, can the government condemn a building that houses a newspaper publisher? Well, the answer is we can't answer the question on the basis of that information. If the government condemns a building because the building's unsafe, it has nothing to do with the fact that it's a newspaper being published inside. There are rules about condemning unsafe buildings. Well, then the government can do that. But the government can't condemn a building that houses a newspaper publisher in order to get in the way of the newspapers spreading ideas and information. Right? The difference constitutionally between the two things is about the government's purpose or its motive. That's common in a lot of areas of constitutional law. And the significance of the president's statements in this case, it has everything to do with the fact that when we want to know why someone does what they do, one of the things that we ask is, well, what did they say about what they were trying to do? That's why the president's statements matter. Okay. um, Then at oral argument, I know the justices asked this question of the advocates, you know, how much of the statements matter and how should we weigh them? And Solicitor General Noel Francisco offered one approach. I think he drew a pretty clear dividing line between candidate Trump statements before assuming office and taking the oath of office and then the ones that might have come after, saying that those pre-oath statements like the total and complete shutdown call during the campaign kind of get mooted or have their animus filtered out by the oath that he took to, you know, uphold and defend the Constitution. And I think there might have been also another piece of the reasoning where the, the interagency process, the fact of the, the order being worked through with other people um, who've also sworn to uphold the Constitution kind of moots any potential animus. Talk, talk to me about, about that approach. So it's a fascinating argument, but I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I think you said the idea is that the oath absolves him of the prior statements. And I think it's a really good choice of words. It has sort of a religious connotation. I heard a smart defender of the ban make this argument by analogizing the oath of office to a baptism. Right? It washes you clean. It gives you a new beginning. It's a pretty good analogy if you want to understand the idea, right? Let's say if you want to understand the idea, whatever happened before, we don't look at that, right? You are not laboring under the burden of that. Uh, these sorts of analogies with the absolution and baptism and so forth, are, they're, they're pretty good. But 
it also points, but thinking about it that way also points out something really important that's a problem for the argument, which is it's an argument that only makes sense if you believe that something supernatural is going on. Right? Now, there's a, there's a place in life for supernatural beliefs, but constitutional law isn't that place. Constitutional law is about the deployment of actual state power, and it needs to live in the real world. And in the real world, when we want to know why someone did what they did, I don't think that we would say, well, they took an oath, um, and therefore we just cannot consider anything that happened before. You just imagine an officeholder campaigns for office, and on the day before the election says, when I'm elected, you know, one of the first things that I'm going to do is I'm going to make rules that are going to make life really hard for Muslims. That's Monday. And then on Tuesday, the candidate is elected. And on Wednesday, the candidate takes the oath of office. And on Thursday, the office holder makes all and exactly the rules that he promised to make on Monday. Right? Who's really supposed to believe that his motives for doing all that changed? And he, he happens to be doing all of those things that he said he was going to do, but for a totally different reason. And what he said before doesn't tell us anything about it. That's not how people's motives work. And that's not how we think in a common sense way when we're trying to figure out why people do what they do. It doesn't really make any more sense here. And the real problem for the government in this case isn't that the president's statements before he was president are not a reliable way to understand his motives. It's that they're only too good a way to understand what his motives are. They tell us really clearly something that the government does not want the courts to say uh, the president's motive really is. Yeah, that particular hypothetical that you set up, that's one that was also put forth at oral argument, I think importantly by Justice Kennedy, right, where assume there's a shorter time span between the statements, the inauguration, and then the action. It seems like an interesting point from that, Justice. Yes, it was an important moment in the argument because the Solicitor General made the argument about the oath washing things clean, and Justice Kennedy seemed like he just wasn't having it. It was as if you could almost hear in his tone, he was saying, oh, come on, do you really expect me to believe that things work that way? I believe that other argument was also presented that a purpose imbued with some improper animus could also kind of get laundered through the administrative um, process and the interagency review process, such that by the end, when the proclamation is is written after different uh, folks in in the executive branch and the foreign relations agencies have considered – different things that it would be pretty diluted. And so maybe it wouldn't really matter that much what the original purpose was. Was that also talked about? It was. And I don't think that argument is so much better. And here's why. The question isn't, could this policy have been put in place for a constitutionally acceptable reason? Right? If that were the question, and what we were saying is, well, you know, the decision in the end and the policy in the end is crafted by lots of other people, and maybe they don't have exactly President Trump's motives. So that tells us that this could be put in place for other reasons. But then maybe we could talk about that argument. But that isn't the question. Right? The right question is, why is this policy there? 
And if the answer to that question is because the president wanted to ban Muslims, or because the president at least wanted to do something that his constituents would understand as the best he could do toward banning Muslims, then that purpose is part of this policy no matter what else it passes through. Right? When the other government officials went to work thinking about and crafting this policy, they didn't do so without the directive from the top of the administration that some such policy was supposed to happen. Right? The reason they were engaged in the exercise in the first place comes from the president's anti-Muslim animus. Okay, now maybe um, turning to Hawaii's counsel, former uh, Solicitor General Neil Katyal's approach to this particular point. Chief Justice Roberts voiced a, a salient concern, namely, if the court does declare that these racially charged statements will you know, sort of prohibit this particular proclamation, then where would that sort of reasoning end? Say a year from now, the president needs to take a military strike that's deemed fairly universally as, as required, and it will come down in a country that's majority Muslim. It does his campaign statements that are anti-Muslim render that decision uh, constitutionally improper? You know, where does this taint end is, is the chief justice's worry. What is Neil Katyal's response on, on that point? So what Katyal said was the president can cure the taint anytime he wants. All he has to do is publicly disavow his former statements. And I think that that response uh, suffers from a lot of the same problems that the Solicitor General's argument about the oath of office suffers from. Right? It's just not true that coming out and saying, I disavow prior discriminatory ideas toward a group of people, means that what you do in the future won't in any way be affected by your attitudes, because it's very easy to say that without your attitudes actually changing. Right? And all of us know this, right? You know, if someone does a bad thing and then they promise that they'll never do it again, and then they do exactly the same thing again, most of us are going to think, yeah, the promise probably wasn't worth very much, right? We're not going to think that it's just a coincidence, right? Mm. That the thing happened again. But what a court should do, right? I'm going to say something extraneous. I, I, I lost the thread of your question a little bit, but I, am, I, I, will, I, will, I'm trying, I will pick it up again. Sure. But there are a couple of reasons why the Chief Justice's question shouldn't really be so worrisome to the court. Right? The first is, in an instance like the one that he asked about in particular, where there's a militarily necessary strike on a majority Muslim country, the question that a court would ask is, well, do we think that the reason that the president is making this strike is that he doesn't like Muslims? And if the strike is really militarily necessary, it shouldn't be necessary for the court to reach the conclusion that that's why he's doing it. It's also a fanciful example because no president vets a military strike with courts before he does it. Right? And courts don't second guess things like that um, afterwards. 
more generally, the concern is the sort of thing that you might worry about if deciding something today automatically meant that future cases must be decided in a particular way and the decision makers aren't allowed to exercise common sense in the future. That's not how law in the judicial system works. Confronting any future case, a court would say, well, why do we think the president did the thing that he did? Right? And we answer that question in light of all the evidence that we have about why the president acted. Now, all this said, I think it's possible that Neil Katyal, Hawaii's lawyer, knows all of the weaknesses with the idea that the president's, those all the weaknesses with the idea that the answer here is, well, the president should just say the right thing and then he'll be good going forward. But he had a strategic reason for making this argument anyway. I'm just guessing here. But he might have been daring the administration to make a public disavowal and figuring that President Trump won't do it. He won't come forward and make the disavowal. And the court will notice that he doesn't come forward and make the disavowal. Mm -hmm. And his choice not to do it then reinforces what his purposes really are. Katyal might have had that kind of strategy in mind. That's just an interesting epilogue to that suggestion on rebuttal. Uh, Noel Francisco, in fact, says that the president has made such a statement, I believe, sometime on September 25th of, of last year, but I think folks have been looking for such a statement around that time and haven't really been able to find it, right? Yes. In fact, the Solicitor General had to send a letter to the court confessing error, right, saying that there was no such statement on September 25th. He said in his letter that he actually meant to refer to a much earlier presidential statement from January 2017, but that letter isn't, but, excuse me, but that presidential statement wasn't really a disavowal either. It was just a statement that said, this isn't a Muslim ban. That clearly is not the kind of statement that Katyal was talking about, right? That's not a repentance. It's, it's not the sort of statement that would allow someone to say, I mean, if any statement would allow someone to say, this person is now articulating a totally different set of attitudes in a way that should make us think that his motives have really changed. Okay, um, maybe just to pose one counter-argument real quick as keyed on something that you, you brought up that courts would tend not to really wade too deeply into national security-related actions the president takes, such as strikes on, on foreign countries. That's an argument that's brought to bear here that, hey, this proclamation is made you know, for national security reasons. The, the countries involved in it um, are covered by it, Syria, Iran, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, Chad, North Korea, and, and Venezuela um, have been identified by um, the Department of Homeland Security as having insufficient vetting processes. And so that's why they're on there for national security reasons. And and so that argument is, is used to say the court really shouldn't be wading too deeply into these waters because this is the, the, presidential's, uh, the president's purview. How convincing or how, how does that come bump up against the other thing at issue here that in, in cases of constitutional claims where there's hints of religious discrimination, the court does tend to wade in and, and put a magnifying glass towards particular actions. Those two seem to be in tension. So they might seem to be in tension, but I think in this case they don't really need to be. Uh, so it's true 
that courts, as a general matter, give the executive branch a lot of deference in the national security context, and they should. As a general matter, the executive branch has much more information, much more expertise about national security issues than the courts do. And the executive branch often has to act quickly, secretly, in all sorts of ways that make judicial review not a great idea. It makes a lot of sense for courts to give the executive branch a lot of deference in the national security area, and they do. The thing about this case is that it tests what the limits of the deference is. So so here's, here's what I mean. Imagine a president issued an order, and he said, I want to tell you two things about this order. The first is, I make this order for national security reasons. And the second is, my purposes here are unconstitutional. Just flat out says it that way. It wouldn't take a magnifying glass for a court to understand that the purpose was unconstitutional, right? Like, it doesn't take a magnifying glass at all. That's just written in big letters on the front of the thing. It's one thing to say courts shouldn't go digging deeply, looking around, strictly scrutinizing to see if something might have an unconstitutional motivation. It's another thing to say, even when the unconstitutional motivation is extremely obvious, even when everybody knows what the unconstitutional motivation is, courts should pretend not to know and call that deference. That's not deference. That's abdication. That just means the president can do whatever he wants for any unconstitutional reason. And then the question is only, is this case different from the one where the president just comes out and says, my motives here are unconstitutional, and if it's different, how different is it? I think the answer is, it's not so different. And part of what's crazy about this case, part of what makes a lot of people find this case hard to think about, I think, is that it's so different in this way from cases that we are used to seeing. Usually, we're used to seeing cases in the national security context where we think, okay, you know, like, there's a, at the very least, a pretty plausible reason why the president did what he did. And given that, the court should defer, and we're done. This is the extreme case where the court does not have to go digging to find the unconstitutional motive. On the contrary, the court would have to make a lot of affirmative effort to avoid noticing the unconstitutional motive, right? using things like the argument that the oath washes the president clean. It's an extreme case. And so I don't think that ruling against the president here will open up a general practice of the courts looking deeply into national security things where they're not supposed to. We don't have cases like this. And if we don't have more presidents in the future like President Trump, we won't have a lot of cases like this in the future. If we do have future presidents who are like President Trump, well, then yes, it's true. It might mean that the courts would do a lot more second guessing. But that's sort of a way of saying if there's a lot more unconstitutional behavior, courts will have more to do. As you say, the, the court wouldn't have to look too far to see some, some pretty clear religious animus undergirding this order. But there's another case 
Kleindeist first Mandel, I believe it is, in most of the pages of, yes. of the briefs that are supporting the proclamation that says the court shouldn't look further really than the four corners of the proclamation where it has facially legitimate bases. Here, there's a, a statute at USC 1182 that says the pr- president can you know, suspend the entry of aliens he feels they would be detrimental to the interest of the United States. And so really that should kind of begin and end the inquiry. And you shouldn't even look at a tiny bit past the, the four corners to find any uh, animus. What's the response to why that case shouldn't really kind of end the inquiry here? Okay, good. So this is a good legal question, right? Because the court did say in the Mandel case, in Kleindienst versus Mandel, that in a certain sort of context that this case probably falls into, uh, that case was in an immigration context, a decision by an executive official that is facially legitimate and bona fide right, should not be second-guessed. The question is, does facially legitimate and bona fide name things, or does it name just one thing? The president wants to say, the, the president's lawyers want to say, Facially legitimate and bona fide means just one thing. It means facially legitimate. It means, is there, on the face of the order, a statement of the reason for the order that is a legitimate reason? If the order says that it's being done for a legitimate reason, that's it, we're done. The challengers are saying, no, 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 that forgets the other part of the test. It has to be not just facially legitimate. It has to be bona fide, right? Bona fide meaning in good faith. Right? If an order says, here's the legitimate reason why we're doing this, but it's a lie, and the court knows that it's a lie, then, right, according to this way of thinking, the court should not defer to it. Right? The court should review it and say, this is no good if the real reason is no good. And I think there are two reasons why the second reading of the Mandel decision has to be the better one. Right? The first is... Uh, the language says facially legitimate and bona fide. That's not a dispositive reason. I could make arguments against that. I could say, for example, that the word facially modifies both legitimate and bona fide. Right? It's facially legitimate and it's facially bona fide, which is just a way of saying on the face of the order, they give you a reason and they don't say and we're lying. Right? The real reason why facially legitimate and bona fide needs to be understood as two requirements is that if you read it as one requirement... It's a rule that means any executive action in this area is safe from challenge as long as the person who does it says he has a good reason, no matter how flagrant the lie, no matter how flagrant and obvious the lie. All they have to do is say they have a good reason. And that would be a weird rule of constitutional law. It's really hard to imagine a justification for that rule, right? Anything that someone does is then justified. All they have to do is lie about it. That doesn't seem like the right rule. So the right understanding of this case, I think, ought to be that if there's a facially legitimate purpose, and we think that reason is offered in good faith, then a court shouldn't review it. The problem here is it's not being offered in good faith, right? The real reason is something else. The real reason is the president's animus. Without that, this order never happens. Okay, then beginning to wrap up um, towards, I guess, that, that second piece, the whether the, the reason is bona fide review, is your your position that the court should take these statements into account really to the extent 
that they're probative? And, and how do you think the court will grapple with this particular uh, part of the question? So the answer to the first question is yes, that's exactly what the court should do. It should take the statements into account to the extent that they're probative, right, which is, you know, just a lawyerly way of saying, you know, well, what do these statements show, right? Whatever they show us about the president's motive, right, whatever we would reasonably think they tell us, that's what they tell us. And, you know, courts do motive analysis all the time, not just in constitutional cases. You know, we try to figure out why people do what they do. And we look at a lot of evidence and we ask about each piece of evidence, well, how much does that tell us? That's exactly what they should do. What do I think they will do? I think that's really hard to know. I think this case could go either way. I think it is possible that a majority will say, we defer to the president in national security and immigration. Uh, The court is not institutionally suited to second guess here. And then they will bend over backwards in all sorts of ways to pretend that they don't know what the motive is. They will accept the arguments of the Solicitor General about what the motive is or about washing clean and decide the case that way. I think that is a possible outcome. There's another possibility, which is that they won't, which is that a majority of them will say, look, in the end, we're not going to pretend that we don't know what we know. It's the function of the court to stand up for some constitutional principles. If we don't stand up for this one, it's transparently obvious to everyone that we're not standing up for it. That's a real dereliction of our function. Um, And so we need to strike this down. And if they do, there's then a further choice. I can imagine one of two things happening. One is they just say it that way and they rule on the constitutional ground that we've been discussing. I think that's possible. But there's also another possibility, which is once they get to that point, they might say, but you know what? We would still rather not hand down an opinion in which we say that it is clear that the president is a bigot. We'd still rather not do that. And so we have a way out. And the way out is to rule on the statutory argument that Hawaii made Mm -hmm. that this particular order doesn't comply with the statute. Statutory argument is complicated. I think, you know, reasonable people could go in more than one direction on the statutory argument, but it is there as a way out for the court if it can't bear the thought either of letting the order stand or openly calling the president a bigot. Sure, that statutory argument that could prevail is basically that another piece of that statute says folks won't be discriminated against based on their nation of origin, right? Yes, more or less. Okay, maybe then just one last one to wrap up. I know some folks might be curious about how this outcome could impact the effect of you know, presidential tweets and other cases. It seems to be a bit of a leitmotif of the, the administration that various presidential statements get pulled into judicial rulings that, that often go against the president. Um, so say the U.S. Supreme Court kind of looks the other way on the, the statements and tweets here, then in, for instance, the 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 challenge to the the DACA rescission, uh, Judge William Alsop in the Northern District cited, I think, some some positive statements that the president made on Twitter about Dreamers as a reason to grant a preliminary injunction. I mean, how how could the courts looking the other way on the tweets bear on cases where the president's statements tend to get get, get pulled in? Yeah, I think it's a pretty good bet that, however, the court rules in this case, 
the justices writing opinions will have in mind that there are going to be more cases in which people challenge executive branch actions on the ground that the president has unconstitutional motives, right? There are going to be more cases like that because we have a president who acts a lot on unconstitutional motives, and the court knows it, and the court knows that more cases are going to come, and the court knows that lower courts are going to analyze presidential motive in the next few years in the shadow of what the court says in this case. So, I, and I, I definitely think the, the justices will be attentive uh, to that reality when they write. Um, and, they're, and they may feel that they're in a little bit of sort of open, uncharted territory when they do it. Right? It's been established for decades that courts do motive analysis in, let's say, the First Amendment context, in the equal protection context, right? places where we think a lot about discrimination and in individual rights um, that this administration has a hard time with. Um, and it's been the rule the courts look at motive and won't strike things down without the showing of bad motive. But during the time that that's been the rule, we haven't had presidents, we haven't had many senior officials at all who say openly things that are pretty strong evidence of illegitimate motive. Right? And so what the court now is facing is the situation where it has to craft some sort of rules that either let lower courts read the statements for what they mean in the common sense way and reach the common sense conclusion, yep, the government is acting for an illegitimate motive and therefore the actions are unconstitutional. Or it has to do something that might make the whole idea of motive analysis seem a little bit hollow, like a little bit of a pretense, right? We say that we will strike things down if the government acts for an illicit motive. But here, even when we have really good indication, uh, it's hard to ask for better indication of illicit government motive, um, you know, unless they're going to stand up in court and say our motive is illicit, which they're not going to do, um, then uh, we're still not going to strike things down. That is a way of saying the courts are not going to stick up very much for constitutional rights. And I think that they ought to write sensitive to that danger. There will certainly some noticeable um, constitutional gloss, whichever way this one shakes out. But uh, for now, we'll leave it there. Professor Richard Primus from the University of Michigan Law School. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. second guest is Rory Gray. He's a senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, an organization that's really been at the center of some of the most salient religious discrimination cases of the past few Supreme Court terms. He believes the court should keep presidential tweets and campaign promises out of its religious discrimination analysis. He joins us now. Rory, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Okay, um, we might, might mention at the top you've been a part of had your hand in some of the more salient um, constitutional religious rights cases in the past few years, including I think writing a brief for the petitioners in the case that was then consolidated, I think, with the Hobby Lobby versus Burwell appeal, obviously a very prominent one. And then I think you also helped draft the petition for certiorari in the case dealing with how religious universities would deal with providing health care in accordance with the Affordable Care Act and also their own uh, uh, beliefs. 
Yep, that's right. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So here on, on Wednesday, the, the Supreme Court wrestled with the, the third iteration of the of the presidential travel ban, considering whether or not, um, well, considering a couple questions, but on the constitutional side, kind of whether or not there was an impermissible religious animus underlying the uh, the proclamation. So you submitted a, a brief here that, that deals with the the way in which the court should look in into that. Obviously, as part of that inquiry, trying to discern an impermissible purpose. Um, the the lower court, the Fourth Circuit, in a, a nine to four ruling pulled in a lot of the president's campaign statements and, and tweets and statements outside of the, the actual proclamation itself to determine that there had been um, you know, some anti-Islam animus. I think the Fourth Circuit said the, the uh, proclamation was tainted with anti, anti-Islam animus um, in enjoining in it. Now, you write that the Fourth Circuit kind of based its analysis on the the lemon test, it's one that's regularly applied in, in contexts like this, but you say, uh, first off, that the lemon test has been sort of discredited. What What do you mean on, on that point? Well, Brian, I mean, the court actually hasn't applied the lemon test for a, a very long time, and I think that actually came up at oral argument. I believe Justice Gorsuch asked a question about it, um, because when I mean, when these cases come up, uh, we have, for instance, a uh, town of Greece where, you know, had to do with legislative prayer. The court doesn't turn to lemon. In fact, it's been using a, a historical based approach to the Establishment Clause and has been avoiding lemon in a, lots of different cases like Van Orden and others uh, for good reason, because I think everybody knows that it's flawed at its foundations, as Justice Kennedy said a long time ago. Sure. We might uh, briefly just stake out exactly what the pieces are of that lemon test, uh, principally First, that issue is whether the government issued a particular law regulation with the purpose of discriminating on religious lines, right? And there's a couple other um, pieces of it. Yep, that's the first prong, and that's really where the challengers to the proclamation are uh, arresting their Establishment Clause case. Then you say that sort of getting into that prong of the test, that even if you sort of stipulate that the that lemon test is is good law, it's not discredited, that the Fourth Circuit applied the test incorrectly by, um, I think, mostly by doing that analysis that went past kind of the four corners of the proclamation, right? Is that, is that what, what was uh, wrong about their lemon test uh, application? Yes. Well, Brian, we, we not only think that the lemon test is, is wrong and that, you know, many justices on the Supreme Court have recognized that over many years, um, because it, it focuses not just on intent, but on perceived intent of a fictional observer who doesn't even actually exist. And, you know, obviously, it's hard enough for you and me to agree on actual intent. We could look at the same evidence and come up with completely different conclusions. And um, when we're talking about a fictional person who's supposed to be the reasonable observer, you know, that person doesn't actually exist, and it ends up just being you, you know, whoever is doing the analysis, they they think they're reasonable because we all think we're reasonable. And understandably, it kind of gets lost in the mess. But even if you accept that we should be looking at purpose, we think the problem with the four circuits analysis is it didn't look at the objective evidence uh, of official government acts, which is what the Supreme Court actually looks for. So things like the laws, text, um, how it's been applied, uh, well, those are the things that we think should have been looked at. They, I mean, the security review that the government conducted 
worldwide was completely ignored by the Fourth Circuit because it said that the government hadn't released it to the public, so the reasonable observer couldn't take it into account. And yet there were obvious reasons for that because a lot of their conclusions were based on classified information. So if you, you know, let me sort of present a, a hypothetical for you to, to, to sort of test the, the boundaries of what you mean by kind of an objective indicia of purpose. You know, if, if President Trump were just the day before this proclamation last year to say, okay, tomorrow we're putting out what will effect, effectively be a Muslim ban, and then he puts out the proclamation the next day, and it does, as you say, reflect a large-scale interagency review of countries' vetting processes around the world. It includes some countries that are not a Muslim majority, like North Korea and Venezuela. You know, in that circumstance, would you say, well, what we should be looking at is the purpose embodied by the governmental act and set aside the statement from just the day previous? I think this sort of reflects a point made by Anthony Kennedy to oral argument that were, say, a, a city mayor just before he took office to say all these things he was going to do that were constitutionally impermissible. If he did them just a couple of days later, um, you know, wouldn't that be a, a bit problematic? Uh, what do you think about that? Well, we think the Establishment Clause was meant to be a structural protection. And historically speaking, it was meant to make sure that, you know, that there was no national church. Um, what's been kind of odd about the way it's been applied is it's being turned into a sword that lets people strike down policy decisions that they, that they don't like. And we just don't think that's what the Establishment Clause is about. Now, if, if a law, say a, a mayor puts out a statement like that and then signs into law something that actually doesn't establish a state religion or tend to do so, then we would say there's no constitutional problem because it's not the talk, it's not the PR statements, it's not the tweets that matter. It's what the government official actually passes into law. Because we have to keep in mind that, you know, government statements in and of themselves carry no force or effect of law. They're informal, often impulsive and unreliable. But I suppose in... in Within the context of constitutional challenges, say like equal protection challenges, a, a piece of the, the puzzle like here with the lemon test analysis is what the purpose of you know, a particular piece of legislation or regulation is. And so wouldn't that perhaps recommend that kind of compiling as much evidence as you can, marshalling as much evidence as you can towards uh, figuring out that purpose is is useful, especially in certain instances where it might be fairly difficult to, to discern um, a purpose? Well, you are right that, you know, equal protection analysis does look to government intent. But that's a little bit different in that it's protecting each individual citizen's right to be treated equally along. So those who are similarly situated have to be treated the same. Whereas the equal, um, equal protection is different from the establishment clause in that the establishment class serves a more of a structural function, and it wasn't really meant in its original purpose to protect individual rights. So the free exercise clause obviously is meant to do that. So that's why there's a little bit of a disconnect there. But even if you do look at the establishment clause, you're looking at the real actual purpose that the government officials had, and that's not what Lemon does. Lemon looks first and foremost, the original lemon test looks at, did look at actual purpose, but then it got kind of changed in the endorsement analysis through Justice O'Connor's opinions that the court later adopted that looks at what a reasonable observer would think about the government's purpose, not what the government's purpose actually is. Uh, maybe I could just pull out one thread from your brief where you kind of list a, 
or describe a bit of a parade of horribles or maybe a you know, sort of a slippery slope that one might fall down in in beginning to to bring into a court's inquiry government official statements, presidential candidate statements um, that were made before an election as uh, being potentially then used to, to, to strike down actions subsequently taken. You, you mentioned some statements made by President Obama, I think then candidate Hillary Clinton, that could be read as being fair, somewhat dismissive of, of religion and and those potentially then being used to to strike down certain laws. What uh, Could you just describe to me the, the slippery slope argument uh, in this context? Yeah, I mean, we think it's important that you have to remember this rule applies to everyone, um, not just the current administration. So if we basically change the law and start looking at officials' heart of hearts, we have to do that for everyone. And, and we think that puts all politicians in trouble. Um, because you can always find some, you know, some evidence that supports your view about what the underlying motive or purpose is. And this will essentially make every passing comment in the digital age on social media the subject of endless litigation. And we just don't think that that's a feasible or good thing. I mean, I think everybody says and even shares things online that they later regret. So we have, you know, very clear examples where President Obama's, you know, clinging to guns and religion comment, and then his campaign put out, um, I think it was a tweet or something that mocked objectors to the contraception mandate who were, you know, objecting to that on very real uh, pro-life religious beliefs. Um, and then we have Hillary Clinton when she was a pre- who was, you know, a two-time presidential candidate saying that certain deep-seated religious beliefs have to be changed. So this, uh, this applies um, both ways. And basically what could happen is that challengers to the travel ban could win this battle and ultimately lose the war um, because government policies and actions that they favor could be struck down under this rule. Yeah, obviously, we probably have the, the most social media friendly or savvy president at the moment, but it doesn't seem like it will be too uncommon that presidential candidates in the future will have fairly long um, social media histories that folks could potentially comb through for, uh, I suppose, animus towards different different groups. That's right. And I think, you know, presidential candidates in the future will almost have to have a strong media presence um, in order to reach, you know, the younger generation, which that's where they get their information. Did you get a sense listening to, to the oral arguments or reading the transcript as to how this particular question was treated? I know it, it certainly got some focus. There's obviously a lot of different parts to this case, but um, an important question whether or not to to bring in these outside of the four corner type statements. Yes, it got a little bit of attention, but but not too much. As you as you know, there's a lot going on in this particular case, and the Ninth Circuit itself didn't actually rule on the Establishment Clause question. It said that it would uh, rule on statutory grounds. So um, what's kind of and the odd scenario is that the Fourth Circuit sitting on bonk in a different case that the Supreme Court hasn't granted review in um, struck down the proclamation based on religious purpose, but the Ninth Circuit, the case the Supreme Court actually took, didn't. So we don't really know how much the court's opinion will deal with this question. What our view has has consistently been, regardless of what type of case or issue is before the court, is that the Lemon Test is wrong and should be overruled. And so that was really why we wrote our amicus brief. Was there any discussion at oral argument about that particular test? I don't actually recall. I remember that Justice Gorsuch, I believe, asked a question as to 
whether they had applied it recently or not. And his point was, you know, it's been an awfully long time, kind of like the early 90s since the courts applied the lemon test, or, you know, in particular, the first prong, the purpose test aspect of it. And I think his point was, is that the court isn't applying that test for a reason. And it's that everybody knows that it's fundamentally flawed. Okay. Um, one other piece here in your brief that also recommends and maybe not looking too deeply into the heart of hearts of a particular government actor that would have a hand in a government action is, is just the, the maybe general posture of courts to be fairly deferential to the executive branch in, in the context of national security and foreign policy actions. Um, could you just un- unpack that for me? Is that uh, sort of a separate piece here that, that also would counsel against you know, bringing in too many of those campaign statements and the like? Yes, yeah, so, I mean we think so. I mean, given given the historical framework, you know, in this country we've never seen the Establishment Clause applied to foreign policy or you know uh, immigration decisions before that deal with non-citizens. So this would really be a uh, expansion of the Establishment Clause and its scope. Um, we think the Establishment Clause should be interpreted in align with its plain text and its historical meaning. And historically, we haven't applied it to these sorts of things. And our brief raises an example, for instance, you know, if somebody objects to the Afghan war, the war we have in Afghanistan, you know, which has been prosecuted under both Republicans and Democrats for years now, they could argue, you know, that it's an anti-Muslim sort of campaign. And I'm sure they could find um, some sort of speaking about radical Islamic terrorism to back that up. Now, do we want that to be the sort of thing that courts are deciding? Do we want courts to be able to go in and overrule policy decisions like that? Uh, We don't think so. And really, I don't think that the courts want to do that either. I think that the Fourth Circuit is an outlier when it comes to that. Um, Your brief also sounds sort of in uh, First Amendment-type considerations. I know out here in the Ninth Circuit, former judge of the Ninth Circuit, Alex Kaczynski, mentioned in a, uh, a dissent to the, the circuit's denial of rehearing on Bank of its enjoining of the ban or the proclamation that, or I think this was earlier, an earlier version of the Taliban, but nonetheless, his concern was that uh, if you, of course, do consult and, and tend to weigh heavily campaign statements made by presidents that are really trying to enthuse and, and rile up their, their core electorate, um, you know, they're probably not thinking about you know, whether or not what they're um, promising to do fits very neatly within you know, a legal limit. So, you know, it, to make it such that those statements would disqualify future action would, would tend to to chill the speech of candidates for higher office kind of all, all together. Um, do you guys have thoughts on, on that particular concern? Well, we, I mean, we definitely did take the position in our brief that what candidates say isn't relevant because obviously they aren't office holders yet, so they they don't constitute official acts. And we do think that it it really changes once you take that oath of office because as a candidate you're only speaking for yourself. And you know a lot of candidates aren't lawyers; they don't know the First Amendment principles or others at at stake. And frankly, we really can't expect them to. So when they take that oath of office and and actually become responsible for either a state or country or city or what, in some respect, they you know they're surrounded by that vast bureaucracy of experts that then come in and uh, sort of help them guide their principle, their uh, policies and their their lawmaking decisions. 
So really, it does change everything. And if you start looking at intent and thinking that matters under the First Amendment, the question is, well, whose intent matters? Is it the person who called for the law at the outset? Is it the maybe the people who drafted the law's text? Or is it the, you know, cabinet level officials who reviewed it? Um, you know, it's hard enough to find one person's intent when you talk about a body of many, many bureaucratic individuals. It becomes almost impossible. Yeah, I think the that point was made by the Solicitor General in argument by Noel Francisco, uh, one, that there's an important dividing line between a candidate's statements before taking the oath and then after he, he has done so, such that the statement made by candidate Trump to have a total, he would have a total and complete shutdown of Muslims immigrating to the U.S. Uh, in, in December of 2015, you know, would kind of be um, wiped off the ledger. And also that kind of osmosing through the administrative process, the interagency review process, um, these sorts of orders and proclamations would tend to to be worked on and, and modified by folks who would know a bit more about what exactly is constitutionally permissible. Um, I know that some folks have thought that seemed like a bit of an artificial dividing line, the pre-oath-taking person who has a particular intent and then the post-oath-taking you know, office holder. That act of just taking an oath wouldn't change the, the actual ideas and, and intent that the the person actually held. Um, but it sounds like you, you think that's, that's an important distinction. I do think it's an important distinction. And actually, it's a, a distinction even the Ansbank Fourth Circuit recognized the second time around. The first time it looked at political campaign statements, and then the second time it didn't. So even it recognized, I think, after some reflection, that campaign statements are not reliable, um, really. I mean, they're PR statements, but we would say the same thing about PR puffery and uh, tweets. So I think once you recognize that certain statements are more reliable than others, you run into a problem with the, the other case here. Because, I mean, an informal, impulsive, momentary comment, we all make those, we all know how, um, I think, a little thought we give some of them, and how um, they don't reflect, you know, the fullness of our views. So um, if, if that's true for campaign statements, it's certainly true for tweets and video shares. Okay, maybe just one question about one of the arguments on this score by uh, Neil Katyal, the former acting solicitor general. The idea that if you stipulate there was some anti-Islam animus motivating this proclamation that it could be cured by a subsequent statement, say one just tomorrow, made by the president, that he, he doesn't you know, think that Islamic immigration is, I think you referred to it as suicide for the country back in July of 2016. Uh, it sounds like, though, you think a subsequent statement is just not really necessary because those statements are, are just not part of the analysis, right? Well, uh, we think the focus should be on what the proclamation actually does. I mean, I, you know, it's all fun to talk about what people's motives were, but in the end, it, it doesn't change what the law says. And that's one of the basic problems with the Fourth Circuit's analysis. Uh, the court didn't look at what the proclamation says. It, doesn't, it didn't look at how it differed from the previous iterations of the same sort of thing. And it didn't, it basically just credited statements that may not reflect reality. I mean, the Fourth Circuit was saying purely based on statements that this is the most restrictive 
thing. And when you look at the various iterations of the travel ban, it clearly isn't. I mean, that's just not true. So I think when you get too focused on intent, you lose sight of, of facts. And so we think that the focus should be on the facts. Maybe just one last one. Do you have any sense of um, the, the grounds on which this court might decide the case, like you say, the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit ruled on different grounds, the Fourth Circuit more in um, establishment clause bases, and the Ninth Circuit just held that the president had exceeded his statutory authority, this being the Ninth Circuit appeal that's being heard. Do you think the court will rule on those grounds and in that way maybe kind of stay out of this question, or do you have any thoughts on that? Well, what's interesting is that the the parties in the Ninth Circuit, um, Hawaii raised the Establishment Clause question in response to that government cert petition, and then the government's reply brief actually agreed that the, the court should consider that question, too. And I think the reason it did is because it knew the Fourth Circuit's opinion was coming out soon, and it didn't want to have to you know, do all this over again. <laughs> so I do think that the court we should reach both of the statutory and the constitutional questions because it granted that question presented. Of course, you know, the court can do what it likes and decide not to at the last second, but it seems like it wanted to dispose of both the Ninth and Fourth Circuit cases at the same time. Well, we'll eagerly await their uh, their final decision here in this one and, and many other cases coming down in the next month or two, but we'll leave it there for now. Rory Gray, the senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. And with that, our show for May 4th, 2018 is complete. I'd like to tender sincere thanks to both my guests one more time, Professor Richard Primus and Rory Gray from the Alliance Defending Freedom. I should thank, too, my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. Thanks also to our editor, David Houston, and also to you for tuning into the podcast. It is greatly appreciated. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>